Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Welcome to episode 57 of Time Sensitive. On this episode, Spencer's in conversation with the architect Michael Murphy, the founding principal and executive director of Mass Design Group, a nonprofit architecture and design collective with offices in Boston, Kigali, Rwanda, Santa Fe, Poughkeepsie, New York, and Bozeman, Montana. What'd you guys talk about? I've been trying to get Michael in the studio for a while. I've known him for a number of years and really wanted to have a conversation with him, this kind of intimate conversation. And I feel like this room was the perfect place to have it. We talked about this notion of a slow space movement, <laughs> basically architecture that actually slows you down, but also is built slowly over time and kind of accrues value and at patina. We also talked about architecture as a storytelling device, thinking about buildings as a means or a metaphor for telling a story. Perhaps no architectural form does that better than memorials, which happens to be a specialization of Mass's work, most notably the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. Really, we got into why successful memorials are those that become tools for collective engagement, for bringing people together, for not just telling stories about the past, but also how do we have a collective future? It's going to be fascinating. I'm a huge fan of Michael's work. We spoke to him on At a Distance as well a few months ago. I'm really looking forward to this. Before we get into it, though, we'd first like to thank our Season 5 sponsor, Le Cole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels, celebrating its first decade this year. Lecole, which has permanent campuses in both Paris and Hong Kong, is opening a third space in Shanghai. And they're also opening a second space in Paris, which will feature a public library of roughly 6,500 reference works on jewelry and gems. And at its main Paris space, Lecole is also opening a gemotech or gem library that will have 1,200 stones for visitors to view and even touch. While rooted in Paris, Lecole is a global operation for exploring and showcasing jewelry in all its aspects. You can find out more about Lecole at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleef. A-R-P-E-L-S dot com. And now here's Spencer and Michael. Joining me in the studio today is Michael Murphy, the founding principal and executive director of Mass Design Group. Welcome, Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start this conversation with this notion of slow spaces. When Andrew and I interviewed you over Zoom a little more than a year ago on April 9th, 2020, for our other podcast, At a Distance, you told us there's an opportunity to create a slow food movement for the built environment, a slow space movement, if you will. Slowing down doesn't mean extending the time horizon of a building, which tends to scare developers and clients. What I mean by slowing down is being more intentional, more purposeful, and ensuring the decisions we make are considerate 
of the chain effect that they have on our world. I was hoping you could elaborate a little more on this. What exactly would a world of slow spaces look like? Yeah, thanks for reading it back to me. I said it better than I was going to say it now. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> but no, let's dig into that. I mean, I think first I'd probably pull back and give some gratitude to the slow food movement, which has been a, some would argue, a half century of work, of advocacy, experimentation, mm-hmm. and great meals, um, <laughs> but a lot of incredible people working you know, to really change our food culture and mm-hmm. our food system through a very simple idea of binding what we eat back to where it was grown and who grew it. Mm-hmm. And that, that simple realignment mm-hmm. of uh, not just the things that go into our body, but a- acknowledging and recognizing where it was grown, its provenance, and who grew it, the people that, that transform it and labor to make it possible, and what that costs, and sort of revealing the oftentimes invisible costs of our everyday consumption mm-hmm. has transformed the way we see the food around us and allowed much of our culture to ask different questions about what we're consuming and how we consume things and its ethical implications, its uh, environmental implications, its health implications. And Mass has done a lot of work actually around farms and food and agriculture. How has some of that work informed how you think about architecture and this sort of slow spaces idea? We are starting to do a ton of work with folks who are in this space but I, I think it's only further validated the idea in my mind that at least in food systems and food culture about let's call it 20, 25 years ahead of building culture and building systems. They've been thinking critically about how we bind labor and place to what mm-hmm. we eat. And I think we need to do the same thing in, in the built environment. You know, the buildings that go up around us where we spend 90% of our lives, each one of those bricks, each one of those screws, each one of those building materials has provenance, has an impact on a global supply chain, and has, of course, a big impact on the labor that creates it. And there's no way to untether those relationships. In fact, that true cost of what goes up around us, its environmental impact, its social impact, its health impact, those same variables that the slow food movement so, I think, righteously and accurately elevated in the conversation many years ago, we are finally now elevating in the conversation of the built environment. We've been too slow, to use that term, and acknowledging it. But I think now that we're in that space and asking those hard questions, Mm. especially after this pandemic or in the middle of this pandemic, rather, I hope, you know, one outcome is that we start demanding much more from the buildings around us and the built environment around us of how it performs and how it's responsible and accountable to these broader value strains that are inevitably impacting us every day. Mm. And slow food, of course, came out of this world of industrialized food. It was a response to McDonald's, a response to TV dinners, to this fast mode of consumption that people, I think, started to realize, whoa, this you know doesn't make me feel so good. As our cities become built quicker, cheaper, in this more industrialized way without taking care to understand, as you were pointing out, each part, each brick, I think in turn, we're starting to feel a little bit more how buildings physiologically, psychologically impact us. 
do you think we might reach a point where people outside of, let's say, the worlds of architecture or art or design are actually thinking about this, where it can become somewhat more mainstream the way slow food has become? Because now slow food, of course, is like... You could argue that Whole Foods is part of Slow Food, and Whole Foods is now owned by Amazon. <laughs> so it doesn't get more mass than that, really. You're absolutely right. But the beginning was a couple of chefs. You yeah. Know, Alice Waters in particular, Dan Barber up at Carlo up at Petrini, Hill. a farmer in Italy. I yeah, mean, these amazing, innovative advocates who were using their platform and their trade mm -hmm. to weave a story that was not just about the mechanics of what we eat, but also about the spiritual dimension, mm. you know, that it was in a sense a piece of art. And I think architects are doing that and have done that, but it hasn't pushed into the broader marketplace where the public is mm. demanding these variables in a way that we're seeing in food, which is why I say we're right. kind of behind that movement. I think that is exactly how it has to go. Mm. And also that we are counting for that change, the costs and the time of what it would take to do it right and pushing back against the efficiency at all costs, mm. at any cost argument about how things are constructed in our world. Because, of course, we're only calculating one variable in there, the dollars we spend before it goes up, but not the very expensive impacts it has on our environment and our communities after it's living in our communities for generations to come. So I think, you know, for us in our work, it does begin at a kind of theoretical and philosophical foundation that the built environment changes us every single day, whether we acknowledge it or not. And uh, we have a responsibility to ask, what is the true cost of these decisions? Mm -hmm. And to kind of push back on the marketplace to say, maybe you can get this one product at a cheaper cost, but what's the environmental and social impact of that cost mm -hmm. decision, that value decision? So MASS stands for Model of Architecture Serving Society. I'm, I'm wondering, in the context of what we're discussing, was there a model for you? Were there any architects practicing in a way that you were like, oh, that's a model closer to how things should be? Well, so the answer is yes. There have been a long history and trajectory, a kind of a strand of architectural thinking, practice, and philosophy uh, that goes all the way back, I would even say, to like William Morris from the arts and crafts movement in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, you know, that can carry forward in some strands. There's in Frank Lloyd Wright, there's strands that continue into a kind of post-war Italian form of architecture like Giancarlo de Carlo, carry forward, I think, into the 70s and 80s, our great friend and colleague, rest in peace, Michael Sorkin, I think was an advocate and brilliant mind around architecture's impact in the world. Mm -hmm. One of the ones when we grew up, when we studied architecture in, in the early 2000s, um, Sam Mockby at the Royal Studio was a kind of beacon of what could be possible, at least with a school program of how to build carefully with intention and in partnership with place and people. So there's always been a kind of continuity, although I think the story of that continuity of that practice of architecture has been fractured under-theorized and forgotten in some places. And so when we began in 2007, eight, I really didn't feel like I had a grounding of the past of how so many practices are asking very similar questions, but are forced, kind of hindered 
in the way the market performs of how they can serve society as effectively and as as much as they want. The, the name, I think, really does kind of focus on the idea of service, that we are in service of something greater than ourselves, you know, not just as a practice, but greater than ourselves as people. We're servicing community, we're in service of place. And I don't think that's a critique of architecture more broadly. I think, you know, architects are, and architecture is always in service and is always socially bound and environmentally bound. It's just that the market doesn't demand we acknowledge those pieces as much. Mm. So I think when we began, we wanted, really wanted to elevate and kind of put a stake in the ground around the idea that we are in service of place and in service of people. And then to try to find a practice model that can't sell that off, that is always accountable to that, which is why we configured ourselves as a nonprofit organization early on. Yeah, which for those not in the world of architecture is quite rare. The notion of a nonprofit architectural practice and particularly how you've set it up, and maybe you can speak a little bit to that. How does that impact the work you do? And how has that allowed you to practice in this very kind of service-oriented way? And I think service here in more of an egalitarian sense, not just servicing a client. There's certain benefits and there's definitely certain constraints for being a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I'll just say on the outset is when I say we're a nonprofit architecture firm to other architects, I have often gotten the <laughs> response from them, which is, uh, oh, hey, so are we, you know, which is a, you know, supposed to be a joke about the <laughs> fact that we as architects make zero money. Uh, but I think there's actually a kind of a kernel of truth in that, which is one, if you kind of unpack that kind of jibe, architects aren't making that much money for the incredible amount of work they're doing. Why is that? Why is the market really not supporting the kind of excessive amount of research and study and innovation and iteration that goes on in architectural practice? So the business model isn't really meeting the work, mm -hmm. the labor. And there's a problem there that is not being acknowledged and solved. I think the second thing is that architects historically, traditionally do give away an enormous amount of work, free labor, free intellectual capital, not just to get projects, so that, that certainly happens, but to nonprofits, to community groups. There's always been this kind of percentage of donated service in the practices that I know and that we love that's always been kind of core to the work. So as structured as a nonprofit, we're sort of acknowledging those two things that are part of typical practice and being accountable to them and really counting them, like specifically counting how much we give away, who we give it away to, and how we can raise money to give more of it away. Mm. So now we give away about $2 million a year in service, mm. which I would say is more like a social enterprise model, more like a, I don't want to say Tom Shoes is not really the best analog, but uh, especially new Tom Shoes, old Tom Shoe, maybe like a little bit more. But we still generate fees. We still, you know, charge fees to mm -hmm. work, but we are very intentional about giving work away to organizations, nonprofits, community groups that are not at a place yet where they can afford to not just pay for services, like really understand what it would be to pay for a building, like mm -hmm. really, really early stage. And that offers certain advantages. You know, you're really helping these folks bring a brilliant idea into an implementable idea. Mm. So we're operating not just as architects, but as really consultants in project development, I think would be more accurate terminology. And how does having a board and, and also 
getting donations, but then also having this revenue that continues to drive the firm forward. How does that all work together? Yeah, that's the other important piece, which is what we have a board of directors and I serve at the behest of the board. You know, so I don't own the company, nor do my partners. We don't own any equity. So that has certain, we call it integrity checks. You know, that the decisions we make, what projects to do, for example, where we might work, where we might push the envelope and explore options or opportunities. We still have a lot of latitude, but it, to some degree, it still always has to be verified by the board. Now, it's not like the board is saying, okay, you can do this, you can do that. But you have to report to them. And we're reporting to them not on profit. We're reporting to them on value. Mm. That's a really interesting constraint that is structurally integrated into our practice. You know, I couldn't tomorrow, if someone called me and wanted to do a huge tower in downtown Manhattan across the street uh, with a huge profit margin and a lot of flexibility, I couldn't say yes. I would have to make an argument why it has social, environmental, and cultural value. I would have to make the case to the team. I would have to make an argument to the board. And I'm not saying you couldn't make the argument. You couldn't produce a compelling or persuasive case. But we could never just say yes to something just for financial reasons. We'd have to say yes under the kind of rubric of service, of environmental, social, and cultural impact. Mm. Yeah, it's a really like a recalibration of the meaning of value beyond something monetary. Yeah, and I think also it's another piece of it is it's decentering the authorship of practice. You know, we look back at great architecture and we talk about architects, this kind of mythology of the sole practitioner mm-hmm. and genius auteur. Frank Lloyd Wright, Louis Kahn. Sure, yeah. Even, even you know, I'm, I even fall into those traps. Uh, we all do. And it's not to say they weren't great geniuses and brilliant visionaries. But uh, you look around at the buildings outside the window, we're in this beautiful setting now, and around the buildings of those who are listening, you know, those were all built by teams. It's more like a symphony or a pit team. It's less like a single visionary auteur. Mm. And I think for us to kind of expand the expectation of the public to demand more from architecture, we also have to decenter that authorship component to say that we can expect more from everything around us, invite new policy, expect and demand more engagement locally with community groups of what goes up, mm. and better design as well, better breathability of buildings post-COVID to make us healthier. And we can do so through a multiplicity of different angles. It isn't just convincing one singular architect. Mm. How do you think about time in the work you do as an architect? And I'm thinking here not just in terms of a project's timeline, but kind of across the sweep of human history. Philosophically, where do you see the line between architecture and time? I sometimes refer to it as the superpowers of architecture. One of the things that may be the thing that I find the most compelling about it is that it operates on a longer time horizon than, let's say, some of the other art forms or other creative disciplines, certainly media. If tomorrow we got a building contract signed, you know, it might be three to five years before it's built and we're celebrating its construction. So we are having to solve problems, not the problems that we encounter today. We're having to project forward the problems or opportunities that 
we think will be consistent from today till five years from now and beyond 10, 15, 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. I think it's a real, really privileged position to have to always be living in that space to say, okay, how do we boil down these issues to their essential qualities that are going to consistently affect the human condition well beyond the kind of challenges of today, but also well beyond potentially uh, our own existence. Mm. And it's not to say that buildings live forever. I don't, they don't. Buildings, we like to refer to them as living things. And on average, buildings have a 30-year lifespan. So that's not, they're not permanent things. But 30 years is more than a lot of things. It's more than a piece of furniture often. It's more than fashion. It's more than things we purchase every day. Those are big, expensive investments in place. And that means they take a lot of money, a lot of resources, and a lot of time to construct them. And so we have to be very deferential to that time horizon and live in that long time horizon and be very patient with the decisions that we're making that are going to affect folks a decade from now. That's a really, I think, a privilege. It's also the challenge. Mm. But it always, I think, forces us to ask questions about going back to first principles, going back to the kind of human condition, going back to which things will consistently be shaping us and affecting us, whether there is a change in healthcare or a change in policy or a change in climate change, for example, things that are we know are happening. How do we think 50 years down the line and try to anticipate some of those changes? Let's discuss this specifically in the context of your new book, The Architecture of Health, Hospital Design, and the Construction of Dignity, and this Cooper Hewitt exhibition, Design and Healing, Creative Responses to Epidemics. Time is such a fascinating subject to explore within healthcare and hospitals, like birth, death, illness. Could you speak to how you think about time in this context? So much of what I've learned, and that's what this book is really about, and to some degree this show, I've learned everything about architecture by really thinking about the medical space of the hospital to some degree. Um, When I was, my first year of graduate school, my dad was in remission from uh, suffering from cancer. Mm. And um, it's a big part of my own journey is coming home and working with him when he got sick on our family home, it's what got me excited about architecture. You did a great TED talk on this. <laughs> yeah. I talk about that a little bit in my TED talk, but the, you know, and, and how he turned to me when we had finished restoring our old home and said, you know, this working on this house saved his life. And he was in remission. And it was a powerful transformative experience. Not just that the kind of mechanics of working on our home, this old 1896 home, which if you talk about time, you know, we were the fourth family that had lived in it and stewarded it, you know? Mm. And we were solving scars that had been made by families before, and but restoring pieces of it. It was kind of a beautiful thing to be a steward of that period of time. Home is a body, really. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's true. It's a vessel that you're able to inhabit for a while and build your life around and then move on in a way. And yet it still has a deep spiritual connection to us. Hmm. And when my father said working on this home saved his life, I mean, it kind of it touched a deeper part of me in a way that was like, you know, you might say, oh, it didn't really save his life. But I think it actually did save his life. It gave him not just a thing to point towards in terms of hope, but, you know, he was fighting that cancer spiritually and physically. And this thing, along with great medical care, um, allowed him to survive for much longer than they anticipated. Mm. That being said, you know, the cancer he had was virulent and dangerous and and aggressive. And um, 
Then I went to architecture school inspired by this kind of spiritual dimension of the built environment. Found very little of it in my first studies, I would have to say. I was walking into my first final review. I'd been up for multiple days. Again, architectural labor is very intense. You're on charrette, they call it, and you never kind of sleep, and you're working on these models, and you're just kind of frenetically producing things. And uh, I walked out of my final review where I'd gotten kind of like butchered. I mean, just like torn apart, not not a good review, which is very typical as well. And um, I had looked at my phone, and there were like 40 missed calls. And they were all from my mother, mm. you know. So I like listen to the first one, you know, my mother's like, where are you? Please pick up. You know, the second one is your dad is going into septic shock. We're in an ambulance. We're going to New York City. We grew up about 90 miles north of New York City. The third one is, you know, for, I'm like, what's the 40th one? You know, I kind of collapsed, mm. like just f- slid down on a wall, just sat on the floor, just afraid to listen to the rest of them. And, uh, just at that moment, a friend of mine who knew my family ran into the school, was like, I've come to find you. Your mother called me. Your father's alive, but he's in the hospital. He's in New York. We gotta, I'm taking you right now. Mm. And it was like this amazing and horrifying moment of um, kind of grounding, you know? I'd been spending three days completely disconnected, <laughs> focused on trying to stuff a YMCA into a, you know, <laughs> tiny, uh, like, parking lot in Brookline, Massachusetts for this speculative initiative, which I'd gotten destroyed upon, you know, interesting, and somewhat <laughs> not interesting. And uh, in that period of time, I, I could have, like, had this f- transformative existential change, mm. which I would have missed. Mm. Fortunately, I didn't, but it was scary, and I think sobering. We drove to New York almost immediately, and I came into this very, I won't mention, famous and well-funded research institution of cancer care, one of the best in the world. And, you know, I was struck by its banality and the kind of lack of design, all those things that we had been learning about, how little design I could see, taste, feel, or experience, and just imagining my father like passing away in this kind of depressing institutional experience. Yeah. We went through the holidays there. In fact, it was actually it was this week, December. It was December 6th, hmm. 2006, actually. Wow. So that's what we're on the seventh. Today's the seventh. Yeah. 15 years. Yeah. So 15 years ago today was when that happened. Wow. Or, um, I think it was six or seventh. Yeah. And um, I remember walking out of that, that hospital with this kind of seed planted in my head. You know, if I ever design anything, it should be a hospital. Mm-hmm. So to go to your first question, yeah. sort of to be sidetracked all the way through the stories, no, no, I think is to say there was this other reckoning there, which was this is a place of great transfer. This is where some of our greatest joys, which I've also experienced, our daughter was born eight weeks ago, and also our, some of our greatest fears and, and challenges, the loss of our loved ones. We have to go into this place often to experience that. And what an incredible <laughs> opportunity for design and why does it fail so frequently to meet what 
is possible in that moment of great existential change? It's a fascinating question and one that I've just can't stop thinking about ever since that. My first memory ever actually is in a hospital. It was a month before my fourth birthday and I'd been in a crash and I was playing with a red fire truck and that's my first memory. I remember the red fire truck. So it was an aesthetic experience, which is fascinating that even at that age, the thing I grabbed onto was the, the beauty or the aesthetic, the thing, the object. Yeah, no, it is amazing. They, they are both invisible and very visible in our lives. Your fire truck story is a good one. You know, I was thinking about what my father's, what he was given. There was this moment where like, they brought in a care dog you know, wrapped in a bow and things. And he's just like, please get this thing out of here. You know? <laughs> they like, we're trying to create joy. And he was just not having it. You know, he was thinking about his life and mm. how soon it would end. And we were, had a view of the East River, actually. And I think that was a really positive thing of the experience of the patient room, that there was this view that we could look out and imagine something else uh, while we were in that institutional space. Mm. So I, I had an ambivalent, as I reflected back later and started to work on hospitals, I actually had the great experience. I, re I had more of an ambivalent relationship to that. I returned to it thinking how lucky of us to be able to be given the space with some of the greatest doctors and greatest practitioners who saved his life physically. And I talk about this in the book a little bit, but I say it both served his body and his soul, but not often at the same time. Sometimes it was serving the experience of being cared for. And sometimes he was a cog in the wheel of the institutional setting where people were operating on him to save his life. Mm. And that binary between serving the person, our whole person, and serving the public, that is the kind of crux of what is at the heart of the hospital. But also at the crux, you might say, I would say, at the heart of architecture. Because it serves two masters. You know, it serves the individual, to great comfort and dignity of feeling like we matter, and it has to serve this greater public order. And that's a really hard balance, and great architecture modulates between these two effectively, and poorly designed architecture does not. Mm. It makes us feel like we don't belong. It makes us feel like we don't matter, and sometimes hurts the very places around us much more than it benefits them. In the book, you write that hospital architecture illustrates the contradiction inherent in nearly all public built spaces, the tension between an imagined population that will need public services, charity, and the system's overt need to shape that public's behavior so its members may attain it, control. So there's this charity and control contradiction, contrast. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? One of the crucial arguments that we must accept if we move into this slow space movement, and I think this historical lineage of architects that have been thinking about social and environmental impact would acknowledge is that buildings shape our behavior. They shape what we do. There's been some academic debate whether that's true or not, or whether we should accept that as true. But you talk to a nurse or you talk to a medical professional, there is just no question mm -hmm. at all that like the way the space is designed is having a direct impact on their ability to work and their ability to perform care, which affects people's lives. There's an amazing woman, Susan Magsiman, at Johns Hopkins, who's running a whole program around neuroaesthetics that's 
digging deep into this, and I, I think it's important work that is going to be more and more noticed in the next couple decades. I think you're absolutely right. There's been a theoretical resistance to diving deep into the questions of how buildings and spaces shape behavior. And so there's been a kind of lack of scholarship around it. We have many more ways to both measure, analyze, and capture neurologically, physiologically, the ways in which spaces around us are shaping our health. Mm. But as a statement of truth, <laughs> I am not only persuaded, I think there is enough evidence around us to say spaces shape behavior and shape our lives. And after the pandemic, I think the world has woken up to this reality, mm -hmm. like everyone in the world, that the buildings we are in are keeping us from getting, at the bare minimum, fresh, uncontaminated air. And that's a powerful, transformational paradigm shift in the way we understand the built environment. Mm -hmm. That has a piece of control in it, right? We have to almost give in to the idea that when we walk into this room, we're made vulnerable. And you feel it every day when you take off the I felt it walking in here, like, <laughs> do I take the mask off or, you know, are we vaccinated? There's a question there that's also like, am I safe in here? Mm -hmm. That's an, a very important moment of both hospitality and hostility. And we're all experiencing that every day by where we enter and where we leave and mm -hmm. not, not fully knowing if we've been, you know, violently contaminated to some degree. The inverse is also the piece of charity, which is we have the capability to create those spaces of comfort, to clarify that this is a safe space, to make visible that you are safe in here. And I use those terms both in a physiological sense, like if the windows are open and we could visualize airflow to know that we're getting enough air changes per hour that contaminated air would not infect us, that's one way. But we also can talk about that from a sense of lived experience, you know, that we walk into a place and I recognize myself in it, that mm. I don't feel uh, othered by it, that this is a place that belongs to me and belongs to us. And I think all of that conversation is emerging in a really productive way today. Um, but at the core of it is the sense that it's always modulating between this sense of charity and the sense of control. And I think hospitals deal with it every day. They're forced to deal with it because they can't fully solve it all the time. Mm. And so we see, again, in hospitals, a kind of theoretical kernel of all public spaces are challenged by this same categorization of protection and violence to some degree. Mass runs what's called a restorative justice design lab. This is a sort of means to design decarceration and invest in restorative justice. In the U.S. alone, there are 2.3 million people incarcerated in more than 1,800 correctional facilities. Those are numbers, I, I mean, they're staggering, but I just don't think people think about them every day. It's an incredible scale. I imagine this project and lab has required spending a lot of time with inmates who are, quote, doing time. What has your time in prisons or working with the team on this project, working with correctional facilities, taught you. What does this lab's work entail? How are you thinking about time in relation to the whole thing? Maybe I can explain what the what we mean by lab and then go into a little yeah, bit yeah. of the work in there and and then talk about some amazing folks we've been able to work with. That really changed the way I understand the built environment. 
and I am asking this in a very nuanced way. I want to I want to stress that like this is yeah, that's cool. There's I think a lot of misunderstandings around prison reform, and I think that there's a lot that can be done in that space and needs to be talked about in a way that's productive. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no greater crisis, especially in America, than the situation of our carceral state. I think Brian Stevenson said it right when it's, he says, from slavery to mass incarceration, it is a continuity of our history of racial injustice and racial violence. The question of why work in prisons or why think about prisons at all as something to work on, again, goes back to two foundational realizations. One, if the buildings around us are causing injury or, or healing, which ones are doing it the most? And how do we both understand them as well as try to cut them out at the root and try to address them directly? As architects, I think the state of carceral facilities in our country, but also it's being perpetuated globally, is indicative of a negligence that we as a profession have failed to acknowledge and address. I think that just is the truth. We can't actually think about the future of architecture without thinking about prisons. Right. Because prisons are so offensive and terrifying and structurally violent, racist and horrific in our nation in particular, I think to some degree the only response has been no response, like to do nothing, to not engage at all. In fact, some would argue that engaging in any way with design of prisons uh, is itself an act of complicity and violence. And I think that's a, there's very, very valid arguments there to be made, especially in the United States. I mean, I think that argument abroad in Germany or Norway or mm -hmm. other places have thought critically about this, about the carceral spaces and how they might be redesigned to address. Right. Sarah Williams Goldhagen's written beautifully about totally. this in her book, Welcome to Your World, yeah. which is sort of an encapsulation of a lot of what we're talking about. Totally. Yeah. And I so I think there's a particular American thing, although there's other places in the world that are replicating what we're doing in America. Baz Dreisinger is writing about this and her incarceration nation's work and doing incredible work. All that is to say, but it is fundamentally a built environment problem. There is an architectural component of the carceral state, which is you cannot detangle it from the issue of prison. And once again, COVID just reveals that, right? Where is it that COVID was the worst in the first outbreaks? Prisons, nursing homes and prisons. It shouldn't surprise us that we are talking about the architecture of where these people are contained and where these outbreaks emerged, right? They are unsafe, quite literally, physically, physiologically. And one of the worst offenders is right here in New York City, Rikers. Completely. Yeah, so it's a very naughty issue, but it needs to be addressed. I think not addressing it is something that's a crisis. So as a nonprofit organization, one of the questions is what can we work on and what should we work on? And it's pretty evident that you have to be working on the condition of a carceral state and the condition of the architecture of prisons in order to really understand where there is possibility. Without designing new prisons, which is a very complicated mm -hmm. place to stand, we could be in service of those that are directly affected by the system. Mm. And so we've been working with advocates, allies, small nonprofits that have been working inside of facilities with residents and trying to ask them how they would redesign their spaces of containment. Baz Dreisinger is one of our partners, so I, I speak with her, and it's been amazing to, to see how she sees it. And the most recent partner we've been working with is the amazing Dwayne Betts, who's just incredible, incredible, inspiring, visionary thinker, advocate, of course, himself, 
incarcerated in his youth, going on to get a PhD at Yale, law degree, recently won the MacArthur Genius Award, poet, just the most amazing guy. And his project is this thing called the Freedom Reads Project, that liberation comes from access to literature, to books, to knowledge. And he wants to put libraries in every prison in America. And we have this discussion a lot, you know, is it right to put them in or should we just not work at all within the system? And he goes, like, people are living every day within this space of torture. Mm -hmm. To leave them behind for ideals that we may get closer to, but to leave them behind in the process is itself an unethical act or an act of negligence. And so we should do both, right? The conditions of confinement are horrifying. They are literally torture. And people are suffering in them every day. And can we imagine a, an active project where we're both serving the daily needs of people who are suffering in that system, as well as seeking to break our country's reliance on the dominance of that system in order to survive? Mm. Some things emerge when you ask that question of service again, which is that you think about the prison as a place, and suddenly, if you're focused on human dignity, like the dignity of the individuals that have to suffer through that, that it's not just the residents who are incarcerated whose lives are affected every day, it's also the correctional officers, the COs, the staff. Mm -hmm. These folks live in a work environment which is insufferable, which literally is making them crazy. There are so many examples of folks, we've talked with a lot of these folks and worked with them, where the space itself is so anxiety driving, so threatening, that it makes them violent, it makes them terrified, it puts them on the defense, it puts them into a position of aggression. They're self-medicating, they're paid terribly. The turnover rate is so high, the burnout rate is so high that they're constantly churning through new folks, many of whom cycle through the prison themselves. A good example of this would be Shane Bauer's stunning work, American Prison, where he, as an investigative journalist, went undercover as a prison guard in Louisiana into a private prison. And the experience of someone making, you know, barely minimum wage, the people he worked with, the residents that he dealt with every day and oversaw that kind of threat of violence in his own mind, how he transformed as an individual, as a brilliant and kind of shocking exploration of the American psyche. And it's spatially determined. So I think we are, as professionals in the built environment, required to deeply consider the conditions of power that we are complicit in when we build things. Mm. And the prison reveals that. So that's the control piece. But we're also responsible to consider how the spaces we design shape the possibility of dignity in the individual. That's the charity piece. And the hospital and the prison are the two clearest examples of where design, the architecture of space, is intended to have some outcome by the individuals it's serving or containing or protecting. That's why this book is really digging deep into those as kind of typologies that we need to explore and understand in order to understand the world around us and ask bigger questions about it. Hey everyone, taking a quick break here to tell you a little bit about our season five sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. 
Celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, L'Ecole brings together teachers, jewelers, art historians, gemologists, designers, lacquer masters, enamelers, setters, lapidaries, mock-up makers, and others who share their passion and knowledge of jewelry with the world. Through courses, conferences, exhibitions, videos, and book publications, Lacole makes the world of jewelry accessible to all. No matter one's experience level, Lacole opens up an incredible art form that has long been reserved for a handful of people. Through a fresh, pioneering approach, Lacole sits at the crossroads of art, gemology, and craftsmanship, and contributes to and consolidates knowledge around the fascinating, vast world of jewelry. You can learn more about Lacole and its current and upcoming offerings at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And now, back to the episode. Another area Mass spends a lot of time working on is memorials. You've designed the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, with and for Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative. And you're currently working on a memorial celebrating and honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King in the Boston Common. These are projects or portals, really, designed for people to spend time in and respond to. And at their best, I think they really allow people to come away feeling changed somehow. How do you think about and process time in this memorial context? The really successful memorials, in my mind, are those that demand something of us and that force us to contribute and participate in the making and remaking of the memorial itself. That's a little abstract, but I can be very specific. When we started our work in in East Africa and Rwanda, a lot of our colleagues, friends, partners are themselves survivors or family members of survivors of the genocide against the Tutsis in 1994. When we were asked to design an addition to the National Memorial, we worked very closely um, in partnership with survivor groups and our own team to ask what should and can this memorial landscape do to advance healing in one of the most horrific atrocities ever perpetuated on mankind. The Rwandan genocide was just absolutely, undescribably terrifying. And on a continent that's really lacking in memorials for various reasons, cultural, social, financial, compared to our obsession with memorials in the West, particularly in America, there are far fewer in Africa. I think there's pieces of that are are definitely true, although I would say, you know, at least with the Equal Justice Initiative's aspirations, you know, Brian would often say, you know, South Africa, Rwanda, Mm -hmm. Germany, places that have suffered through incredible atrocities have spent enormous amounts of resources on their memorial landscape. Mm -hmm. South Africa certainly has. And I would say in Rwanda, you'll see genocide memorials in nearly every community. Most of them put up small plaques or statues, reinterred public graves, put up by survivor groups. And the the memorial landscape is vast, actually. It's just different in the sense that it's not heavily financed the way it is here in America. Yeah, that's true, right? It's incrementally financed. So there's a national memorial there. And, you know, one of the things that I think really 
transform the way I understand what memorialization might be mm -hmm. as an act, as a living act, as a ritualized act, is that every year during Genocide Remembrance Week in the first week of April, the public comes to the National Memorial and for many years would bring remains of people that were found throughout the year to the National Memorial to add them to the open grave that sits beneath the museum. Wow. A like completely transformative, sobering and powerful experience to watch and also recognize that that annual ritualized act of remembrance is also part of the reconstruction of their country in so many powerful ways. Mm. It taught me that the museum itself is really the location of these, it's a place for information, but it's really location for ritualized acts that need to be necessary to reconstitute the kind of future they're, they're interested in constructing. Mm. And when I thought about the other memorials that we loved, you know, you've done this incredible work on this and we've talked about this and thank you for the brilliant book. You know, I obviously think about Mylin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And the thing that I think about there, beautiful, of course, a stunning project, transformational in terms of how we think about memorial landscape. But it was always the rubbing that really made me think differently. It was that people would go touch. for the name, touch it and leave with something. And there's something in that act of tactile memory that you engage it directly. You're not just passively walking through it. You're not just walking past it. You're looking for something. You're on a hunt. You're searching, and then you're engaging it tactily, and you're pulling something away, and you're leaving with a remnant. That is a multi-stage act, a procession, if you will, of a way in which the location ingrains itself in you as an individual to create deep memory, what I would call deep memory. You don't forget that because you've engaged in it in multiple ways, emotionally, mm. mentally, but also tactically. Mm. So when we were asked with amazing Brian Stevenson and his amazing team to help think about the memorial, we went back to both his writings and teachings about what transformation is. What is the goal here? You know, the goal is to achieve something closer to racial justice, closer to a society that isn't reliant on systems of white supremacy and domination, and to go through something individually, to go through a form of transformation. So we designed the memorial very specifically around what we would call these five stages of transformation that he talks about that are consistent with some of these things that we've seen internationally, but you know has a particular characteristics that Brian brilliantly theorizes. And it's the procession through, the time it takes to journey through this location that we think is what starts to sink these ideas deeper into us and force us to be engaged instead of just a passive agent, you know, walking past or saying I was there, but not really participating in being there. It's bodily, that experience of walking, particularly I'm talking about the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. When I walked out of that memorial, I had to sit down on a bench for probably 30 minutes and recover. Mm. It was not recovery in the sense of feeling totally traumatized. It's, it is a very harrowing memorial to walk through, but it's also at the same time uplifting. Mm. There's a lot of sense of hope, the water feature, the park-like break in the middle. And yet 
I think just to process that properly, what you walk through, what you experience, requires the time to sit. Um, so I was glad there were some benches right outside. <laughs> yeah. I love hearing your reflection on that experience. So we talk about five stages of transformation, and we try to design the physical vignettes that respond to those specific mm. transformational moments. Those five stages are identity matters, that we must feel discomfort, number two. Mm. The third is that we must change narratives, historically or contemporary narratives, to be more truthful. Uh, the fourth is we must get proximate. We must get proximate to place and to uh, communities because they know how to answer the questions that we may not even know how to ask. And fifth, we have to remain hopeful. Hopelessness is the enemy of justice he often talks about. And, and at the end of the memorial, we have a moment we aspire to, or at least hope that folks feel a sense of that empowerment and also some ability that they too can be a part of that transformational change. Mm -hmm. And so when you climb up the center, mm. we thought a lot about those images of lynchings in the public square where 10,000 people, there's an image from Paris, Texas, where like 10,000 people came out to see this horrific killing, bringing their family members, traumatizing children. And they built this structure for everyone to see, and they were lifted up above. And that public spectacle, we thought a lot about and wanted to invert that, that you were, when you were on the top of the hill, you were looking out over the city of Montgomery and you were in judgment of the dead instead of the inverse, that you were being judged on your own participation in the system and, and resistance against it. The only way of actually experiencing the city is to look through these pillars. That's right. 800 of which are, are hanging and as you walk through this sort of procession, your neck begins to crane up and you realize you're the observer and then in the middle you're being observed. That's right. I mean, it's amazing you had that experience because it's not didactic, you know, we're not telling you how to experience that. You have to feel that and to be able to process that through that journey. So it's exciting to know that you had some of that experience. I think every American should visit this memorial. I think it would completely change this country. Wow, that's quite a... Thanks for saying that. You know, one of the things I'll just add on the end, though, one of the other lessons that we learned from Rwanda in particular is, is that people are desperate to come, but they're also desperate to participate. And they don't know how to participate. And it is actually, I think, incumbent upon us to leave tools that others can develop on their own to address these very complex and challenging issues locally. So outside, you know, there's these markers that can be moved to your home community if you claim them through a series of acts of collective engagement. There's a sense of vulnerability. Like, I don't know how it will end, you know, how many will be moved, if any will be moved, how many people will claim them, what it will look like in the future. But that sort of radically vulnerable position of a living thing, mm -hmm. I think is also part of the architecture being open to its own amendment over time, but grounded in kind of, let's say, the essential principles that it wants to continually reproduce and ritualize through its experiential journey. Mm. I did want to also mention the Gun Violence Memorial Project. 
This is an ongoing effort that Mass has been working on with violence prevention organizations Purpose Over Pain and Every Town for Gun Safety. It was first shown at the Chicago Architecture Biennial in 2019 and was on view at the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C. as part of the Justice's Beauty exhibition. What has it been like working on this project? Could you share your vision for it, what you've learned? And it seems like it's set to be this long view memorial in many ways, like ongoing, something that could one day become much more of a permanent fixture in the nation's psyche. The gun violence memorial is something that I think will, if successful, will live for decades and continually be constantly changing because the epidemic that we're in is changing every day and is not ending. It's getting worse. So this kind of memorial has a different time horizon than one which is looking at past events that are encapsulated and framed by a period of time. The challenge in the lynching memorial is to communicate and narrate how these historical events are present in today's contemporary landscape, hence the linking to mass incarceration and other acts of racial and terror. But I think that was the kind of historical challenge to bring it to sort of why it's relevant today. Where the gun violence memorial is so relevant today, the challenge is a slightly different one, which is to, everybody has an opinion about it, so it's to kind of depolarize our position on the very complex and polarizing debate around guns in America and try to shake the bias that we have around this debate and bring you into a memorial to see these individuals, all of them who have died from gun deaths in America as individuals, as human beings who have a life and whose human dignity matters and that has been lost in the debate itself. So operationally, you know, what that memorial looks like is something very different. And the best example and one we pay homage to is the AIDS Memorial Quilt, the Names Project, which as many of us know, is just one of the greatest memorials ever and uh, is also ongoing. It's a living thing. And was a simple participatory request. Create a panel of a consistent size and do with it what you will to honor and recognize your family members who have died of the epidemic of AIDS. And in 1988-89, at that period of time, the debate was uh, one that was being resist. There was resistance at the government level of acknowledging the disease, of advancing policy, of naming it, fighting for especially the LGBT community that was dying of it in particular, but of course many others were as well. And so this gave names to the disease. It gave names to these individuals. It elevated their dignity and their through stories touched the human condition. And when placed on the National Mall, covered the National Mall, becomes the biggest memorial in the country and then is immediately able to be removed, packed up and, and moved somewhere else and made powerful. In that project, we really learned, in thinking about it, a kind of theory of what memorials must do. My colleague, Jadi Amazi, who leads our memorial work, kind of theorized it well to me. She said, memorials must touch, they must touch the intimate and the infinite, both. They must modulate between the sense of the overwhelming, uncountable, unquantifiable mass of this topic, this issue, the infinitely huge sense of horror and trauma and pain that so many events in our world have 
projected on communities and made communities suffer. And yet we must have a way in to talk, to see the individual as a human being and connect with them as an individual human being. Mm -hmm. And that's the intimate. So modulating between those two things, always going back and forth, I think is the role of spatializing loss because we can't do that necessarily very easily on a digital screen. You can't really, I mean, there's some maybe graphic experiments that have been done and, and some good graphic design that has tried to do that powerfully, but it's really hard to, to really feel that. And that's why so many of these names just become numbers. And Pam Bosley and Annette Nance Holt, who are the founders of Purpose Over Pain and approached me at the opening of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in 2018 in April, and said, we need a memorial to our children who died of gun violence, who told me about their sons who were killed on the streets of Chicago. And they said, our sons have become numbers. They, their lives, their identities, their stories have been lost in this debate, and we need to reclaim them. And um, Terrell Bosley was a Pam's son, and uh, he was um, killed outside. He was just going to church band practice, just horrifying. And... Um, Blair's son was going to a job in downtown Chicago uh, on a city bus, CTA bus, and somebody came on the bus and just shot up the bus. You know, and these are two stories of thousands, hundreds of, you know, we have a hundred people killed a day in America. School shooting last week. School shooting last week. And we just kind of indifference or like the sense of inability to know what to do mm. has created just this casing around all of us of our inability to act and a kind of lack of commitment to searching for those stories again mm. that would transform us all. So I was very touched. I, I, just, I had another one of those moments where I just sort of started to like collapse and weep just hearing those stories. It just changed me. And I said, okay, we have to do something. I was sitting next to my friend and collaborator, Hank Willis Thomas, who you're working with on the Boston Memorial and collaborated with on the Gun Violence Memorial yeah, and, yeah. and actually had an installation at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Yeah, that's right. It's the last part of the, the public park of the memorial in Alabama. And I was sitting next to him and I told the story about uh, meeting these women. He said, you know, my, my cousin was killed in the streets. It's what my company's named after, Songha. And um, I think about him every every day. And so we agreed that moment to do this thing. And so we developed this memorial for the Chicago Biennial. And the idea is very simple, much like the AIDS quilt, it's only made real if people contribute and participate. And we imagined a glass house where there'd be 700 glass bricks or spaces for glass bricks, 700 people killed a week, one house a week. And we would ask family members to contribute a personal object or memento to fit into that brick space uh, to help construct that house. You know, there's analog to this. In Montgomery, actually, um, Ralph Abernathy, the great minister and partner to King, his church, which he preached at, they called it the Brick-A-Day Church because the congregants would bring a brick, each brought a brick to construct this place of community and, and spiritual deliverance. Mm. That idea of each individual bringing a stone or a brick is, is an old cross-cultural idea about constructing community and constructing place. You think about barn raising and the 
Amish tradition, or you think about the mosques of Mali, you know, where the remudding every year is a ritualized effort to kind of reclaim and, and rebuild the things that are important to us. I think there is such a powerful and kind of transcendent notion that we take care of the things we love and uh, each one brings one. That idea that we all bring a story and we all bring something to the things that we then need or rely on to survive. Mm. So the house, obviously the domestic form has a lot of symbolic and kind of spiritual dimensions. It's a place of comfort, safety. It's also the place of nightmares. It's a place of domestic violence and the hatred around the dinner table, the things you won't say in public. It's the place of care, protection, and fear and survival. And it's like the most original piece of architecture. It's our homes. It's what matters to us and what we base our identities upon. Mm -hmm. So that house and the bricks that make it being made up of stories of individuals that lost their lives for us is a punctum, a way in to try to ask this deeper question of how do we survive this thing, this epidemic? How do we let it fester? How can we let it fester any longer? Mm. The goal is to build a house for every state, 52 houses, one for every state in the United States, plus DC and, and territories. So have 52, one for every week, and put them on the National Mall and collect objects from all over the country to build, like the AIDS quilt, a kind of national movement in March that is a cultural project which mm. is bringing us all together to not forget those names. Mm. Before we finish, I did want to mention, I found it interesting in researching you to learn that you were sort of exploring becoming a journalist before becoming an architect. And in fact, we're working on a story in South Africa when you first found out your father was sick with cancer. In your life story, I guess, where does storytelling come into this? Because it seems to me, and there are predecessors in architecture who have, you know, Rem Koolhaas perhaps being one of the foremost in terms of being journalists and then becoming an architect. But how do you see this sort of junction between a sort of journalistic approach or repertorial approach where you're going out, you're collecting the data, you're, you're finding the stories, you're talking to the people? Where does that intersect with the work that you do as an architect, it seems to me that it's very important within masses practice and, and within what you do on an individual level. Yeah, well, I, I've become persuaded that architecture is a narrative vessel. It is a storytelling device. It tells the story of place. As we were just talking about, each one of these bricks is itself a story. Each one of these human handprints we talk about not just the environmental footprint, the human handprint. Each one of the stones of the hospital we built in Rwanda was crafted by an individual who cut it to fit perfectly into place. I mean, when we drill deep into provenance, we find human, not just labor as it's sort of fetishized, but like the human act of constructing things together in tandem with each other to build the things that matter. That Brigadier Church is really powerful because we've seen it happen in other forms. And um, I saw it directly when I worked in the house with my father. Like that experience will never leave me. It's actually been the fuel which has given me purpose in my life was just forgetting everything else and just trying to restore the house. And um, with care, attention, 
to detail and a kind of intimacy that would be viewed by very few people, but actually was deeply meaningful for me. Working together, less like what we result in something we care about, but it was really the working in partnership, often without saying anything that I think really made me prepared for when he ultimately did pass away. That experience itself was a gift to allow me to live unburdened by his loss. I think about it now with my son, who's 21 months, born at the beginning of the pandemic, and now my daughter born at the, <laughs> the mid-pandemic. Just what do we want to leave behind? Like, what's the legacy that we have? And it is the things we make together that take care of us that seem to be the most profound. I think I would end with those statements that the things around us have this other spiritual dimension. They heal us in lots of different ways and challenge us in lots of different ways. But yes, I agree with storytelling as something that has been informative to me. I mean, I was a literature major. I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I'm not a very good journalist. I'm not as good as you, Spencer. I can't ask you <laughs> questions. But I was so interested in and I think changed and challenged by learning the stories of places and communities that uh, when I was working in South Africa, I was trying to write about, actually, the, I ended up writing about the architecture. I was writing about the proliferation of security infrastructure, razor wire and fences that were emerging after the end of apartheid, suddenly the kind of fake open society, which was, of course, gated, racially gated, then when it was opened as a society, gates emerged everywhere around all the houses. And at some point, it was a point where you had to put up gates because if you didn't, you would definitely get broken into. But some residents were trying to aestheticize the, the fence infrastructure in a way to kind of modulate through design to try to deal with the, the offensive defensiveness <laughs> of the fence. <laughs> Makes you think it trumps the wall. Yeah, no, exactly. And trying to actually modulate that intersection in a way that says we still respect you as a public but we're also protecting the home there was a fence that was developed uh, with kind of customized steel work that was of baobab trees and these sorts of things i found really really beautiful and a kind of an attempt to try to wrestle with the reality of the everyday while also trying to through aesthetics and through design manage that interface that threshold between love trust respect and security for me, buildings, the ones we love, tell stories. They tell stories about who we are and who we want to be and what we believe in as a community. They don't tell stories about a single author and what he believes that frequently. If we care about them, we protect them. Shigeru Oban said that, we take care of the things we love. I thought that was a great quote from him. The last piece of this is I've been really informed and I think convinced by the amazing Marshall Gans, who is an organizer, I don't know if you know his work at the at the Kennedy School. He was with Cesar Chavez in the 60s. He was in Mississippi uh, in the civil rights movement and, and came as an organizer, social organizer, to persuade folks that it's the stories that move us to political and social change. He talks about the every great story is driven by the narrative of self, us, and now. Why this matters to us, why it matters that I am here as an individual, my story, and why it matters now. And if we can tell story of self, story of us, story of now, we can move the needle in social change. And buildings, great buildings do that. 
But we've kind of lost our, you know, so we sort of lost our way a little bit. I think we're really good at architects at telling the story of self. That's the auteur story. We're great at telling the story of now. Like the flashiest, newest thing is really <laughs> the most beautiful. And like, that's why you should like us. But I think we've stumbled on how to tell the story of us. And at least that's what we're trying to do at our organization. But I think increasingly designers around us are trying to develop the story of us which tells a story of place, tells a story of community, tells a story of purpose in a way that you can see it. You can look at it and say, it's ours. That's ours. We, we deserve that. It's the church. I brought a brick to it. It's mine. You know, I, I feel at home in it. When we go back to the, the gun violence memorial, just last week, Pam and Annette came down to Washington, D.C. to see it, and we've been adding. We put in 700 new objects been collected over the last couple of months. And you know, Pam was talking about it as her house. Where's my house? Where's Terrell? That's my house. This is my house. And um, that sense of ownership, because we contributed and we have a something that is left here, I think carries on. It's how I feel about my house in Poughkeepsie, New York. It's always, it'll always be my house, even though somebody else owns it now. But I think it's how we feel about the places that we're from. It's how we feel about the places we inhabit. It's stories that matter for us to understand the built world around us. If they don't tell a story, we don't really understand why they matter. Michael, thank you so much for coming in today. This is great. Thanks. I appreciate it. Extra thanks to our Season 5 sponsor, Lecole School of Jewelry Arts, which is supported by the Maison Van Cleef and Arpels. A unique place for learning, Lecole welcomes the general public to the world of jewelry through courses, conferences, exhibitions, videos, and book publications. You can find out more about Lecole at www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. That's www.lecolevancleefarpels.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can listen to our other podcast, At a Distance, by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. And if you like our program, please be sure to subscribe and leave comments. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Emily Jang, Tiffany Zhao, Mike Lala, and Johnny Simon. <laughs>